Welcome everybody, you are listening to No Coast Cinema here on WGM Plus. We are your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago. I am Tom Hush. And I'm Connor Cornelius. And we're very stoked to be back with you for another week of Chicago Film Conversation. Uh, a year now of Chicago Film Conversation. We've checked the calendar, yeah. and in fact, it's our anniversary time. Yeah, really excited. I can't believe uh, from such humble beginnings. Yeah. And, you know, recording from directly into my laptop. Literally sitting on your bed in your old apartment <laughs> in Rogers Park. To hear, I know here As in WGN Studios in Tribune Tower, soon to be former WGN Studios, right? But we'll be moving along with them, and I, I hope you stick around with us because we've got a lot more great stuff coming in the year ahead. Speaking of great things Spe- coming up, exactly. Um, we have a writer and director. He is here to talk about his feature-length film Porto, starring Lucy Lucas and the late Anton Yelchin. Uh, his name is Gabe Klinger. And he has put together a fantastic film here, a tight story that follows two star-crossed, I suppose, lovers in the city of Porto in Portugal. Uh, It's a very emotional and breathtaking story that really can tear at the heartstrings and frames love in a very interesting and um, circumstantial circumstantial and, as I said, heartbreaking way. Uh, welcome to the show, Mr. Gabe Klinger. Thank you so much. Thanks. Nice to be here. Um, so let's start off with you as a filmmaker. Um, uh-huh. What what got always, you into it? Yeah, what oh, got you okay. there? I guess, I, I, you know, I got f- fired or uh, oh, good. From, from every other job. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm unemployable. So I had to uh, create my own kind of uh, job. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I've been doing film stuff for most of my adult life, and uh, I, I suppose it was kind of a natural progression. I started making little movies when I was a kid, using my mother's Sony uh, video eight millimeter camera. Then I, when I was a teenager, I bought a Super Eight camera and was developing film, and you know, then bought a, a sixteen millimeter camera, and then I just started. I started getting really into watching films, and I became like a movie buff. And I was just I was living in a foreign country where I didn't speak the language. And I was really, I didn't have any friends, so I was just going to the movies a lot. And so movies kind of became my friends. And uh, and th- from that, I just, you know, uh, it just became kind of an obsession and, re- you know, completely replaced my my social life, you know, this activity of going to the movies. And, um, and then it became, luckily, uh, when I was 19, I, I moved back to Chicago, which is where I spent uh, a, a good chunk of my youth. Uh, they were hiring uh, at Northwestern University for the Block Cinema, where uh, they have their film program there. Mm-hmm. You know, they do a you know a quarterly film series, and um, their film programmer was off on a kind of a sabbatical, and I was hired to fill in, and uh, and that was my first kind of like serious film job. This guy named Scott Curtis hired me. And uh, and I just started programming movies and then, you know, introducing them to people. This was in 2002, 2002, 2003. Mm-hmm. So a long time ago. Uh, and um, and it just, just kind of all started there. At the same time, when I was about 18, 19, I was part of the Chicago Film Critics Association. And I was, you know, getting access to press screenings and things like that. So I wrote for a few places in town. 
Uh, I had my own little magazine that was publishing mm-hmm. online. And um, that was, it was just a way to, to access films and a way to talk about films. And um, so I was just doing that in a, in a you know, more professional capacity. And so it all kind of stemmed from that stay in the foreign country that you didn't speak the language and you were just going to the cinema a lot? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, uh, it, was, it was Barcelona, Spain, and my parents just had the idea to move, you know, uproot us, my sister and I. And uh, and at first it was just like, what are you guys doing? This sucks, you know. And uh, we had to leave behind all of our friends. We had to leave our school behind, and you know how it goes right. when you move. And uh, and then in, in retrospect, it was just absolutely brilliant parenting because you know we, we who doesn't want to have you know Europe as your backyard, you know? Right. And uh, ha- you know that's where I discovered like the great European art house cinema and all. You know, started watching really weird movies and uh i don't know if i would have gotten the same exposure in the burbs here in chicago you know who knows right. it's weird so, to think about yeah. that in retrospect like, you know, yeah you know it's an alternate you an alternate version of you that got a different film education and uh it's it's weird to think that if you had not i, I it makes me wonder having as you said europe as your background especially a city like Barcelona, so yeah. beautiful, so historic. You know, I think you can see that kind of appreciation for the old style city in Porto. Um, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, there's yeah. definitely like a personal touch with this film with Porto. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that you uh, you were actually born in Sao Paulo, Brazil, correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, how long did you spend in Brazil? The first four years of my life, I think. Yeah, first four years. There was a period where we were kind of going back and forth. So. When you look, you look online. Some of my these, you know, when I'm asked that, it says six years. Other times, it says four years. It's not consistent. It's not, <laughs> I was in a, four to know, six. I, yeah, four to six years. An uh, air of mystery. Yeah, exactly. Clearly, you remember it very well. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I remember uh, docking off in in Miami. Not literally. We flew into Miami. That was my first uh, access point in in the in in the U.S. And already at the airport, laid over, I made a friend. And I was, you know, like a kid that was my age and we were hanging out in the terminal and I already started to speak English. So when you're, you know, four or five years old, that's like that process is right. really, you know, I just, right. yeah, we love that, that experience. But then when you're, you know, I was 13 when I moved to Barcelona and that was awful. You know, it was just like, <laughs> well, it's like, you it's, know, it's a tough year of your, yeah. you know, tough time of your life. You're really starting to come into, uh, you know, a lot of changes. And then all of a sudden, you know, just like. You're in Barcelona, and you're spending your adolescence in a place where, as you said, you don't even know the language. Totally different cultural context. Yeah. So and you don't you don't speak so, Spanish. Do you speak uh, Portuguese? I do. I speak Portuguese, and uh, I, I speak Spanish now, obviously. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, so, yeah, th- that feeling of lo- I don't know if you know this is a good moment to segue into Porto, but mm-hmm. um, I think that l- feeling of loneliness. I certainly experienced that in Europe. And when I was talking to Anton about his character, Jake, you know, he's a, this American loner in living in, in Europe, right? right? I mean, he's, he's uh, he, not, not exactly me. It's not exactly biographical. But I saw there were kids in my school who were kind of like that. They were mm-hmm. from uh, other places, and they found themselves in Spain kind of searching for themselves, and yeah. yeah, so there was a bit of that in his character. So yeah, let's jump into the film Porto. Perfect sure. segue. Um, where did the initial idea for Porto come from? You mentioned this kind of feeling of loneliness and uh, you know, list, you know, kind of a listless personality for Anton's character. Yeah, where did that all kind of spring from? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, looking, it wasn't exactly a conscious thing writing it. I wasn't thinking about that history. It occurs to me now when I'm, you know, talking to you guys, right. talking, you know, touring the, around the movie. But uh, at the time I was writing it, and well, I mean, I think it start it starts to become conscious when the actors start asking you about it. You know, <laughs> like when. Um, what's the motivation? Yeah, yeah. What's who? Who am like? Who's this character? What should I be? You know, and you want to kind of come up with something authentic there. And that's what I channeled. I channeled that experience, uh, those kids who then they, you know, they graduate school and they don't move back home. They sort of stay, they stay there. They stay in that place, but they're still kind of cultural outsiders. So, um, so I was definitely, when, when we had an initial draft of the script and I shared that with the actors and Anton came back and read his character and said, um, can you tell me a little bit more about what you were thinking? You know, and then, and I started to go back and that maybe that you know, shifted the dialogue, the backstory a little bit. And, you know, so, um, yeah, what else? I mean, there were, there are certain things like a structure that are, you know, important to me. Like I wanted to do a movie in three parts Mm -hmm. and, uh, I wanted to have these three film formats, super eight, 16 and 35 millimeter. And so I wanted to design a story around that structure, which is, you know, kind of what they tell you in film school is first come up with a story then come up with a form. Right. And we kind of did it the other way around. We, we approached it counterintuitively. And I'm, I'm kind of a formalist. I like formalist films. I like films that are working on this, you know, uh, formal level. Um, and, um, and so, you know, I thought it would be interesting to sort of design that and then come up with a story that would fit in that. I also thought first-time narrative filmmaker... I'm going to try to do a small story, you know, two people, largely interiors, and um, and and that's going to be easier than doing, you know, like let's say tackling a, a historical epic my my first time, <laughs> yeah. around, you know, or, or a, a war film or whatever. Sure. But of course, that's a mistake because whatever you take on is going to be challenging. If you're going to make right. a, a, an intimate love story, you want to make the best intimate love story that you're going to make. You're not, you know, you're not going to be lazy about it just because it's a love story. You're going to try to make it dynamic within those limitations so um so that's i mean there were, it was a combination of those types of things i didn't want to bite off more than i could chew we've all been in romantic relationships we've all been disillusioned in our romantic lives at one one moment or another and um so i could channel from there as well um i could channel from the experience of my collaborators you know, uh, Larry Gross, my co-writer, uh, Lucy Luca, the, the 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 actress in the film, my editor Geraldine Mangineau, my my producer Sonia Bushman. They were just people who were I was talking to all the time during the the, the pre-production, production and post, and um, every step of the way. There was, you know, we'd introduce a different layer. There was something mm-hmm. that we were all we we could all relate to this experience that the characters were having. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting that you used three different types of film in order to sort of capture those movements within uh-huh. the movie. Like you say, you speak about the movie as if you were trying to limit yourself uh, conscientiously. But to use that, that's like, a, you know, that's pretty innovative, I've, I've got to say. Especially the way that's used in the film with, um, you know, certain... I guess not time timelines, but time you know periods in the characters' lives are right. shot in a different type of film, different aspect ratio, and it's it felt really nice as a viewer 
to have that kind of visual reference like okay yeah. i know where i am right now and sure. that's that form you're talking about with um sometimes when you're telling a story in this manner people get lost they're not sure where yeah. they're supposed to be along the characters lives but i never felt lost at any oh, point good. during porto it was really i mean great. people do and there's some um intentional kind of ambiguity about time in the film sure um, it kind of starts to blur a little bit. If you're following the movie emotionally, you're not following it in a linear way anymore. Right. And that's okay. We were right. okay with that in the editing process. I was like, uh, it's not a, you know, Wes Anderson with the Grand Budapest Hotel did the aspect ratio thing mm-hmm. uh, to delineate uh, past and present, right? Right. Uh, or to shuffle between. Or or are they like bookends, if I remember correctly? It's but like, it's just, it's nice to have the like aesthetic reminder that something has changed. Absolutely. Even if you're not, yeah. like you said, even if you're not like following along yeah. narratively. Yeah. Oh, totally. And but I think you know Anderson. He is sort of uh, like a formalist on this. He's very rigorous. Yeah. I haven't seen Isle of Dogs yet, but I'm I'm very excited to. But it's um, he's you know, it, I, I wasn't exactly thinking of Grand Budapest Hotel, but it was sort of that was a movie that sort of legitimized the idea of using different aspect ratios and different mediums mm-hmm. for us. Especially since he he does like Super Sixteen work and all his movies, you know, it's just like, well, if if Wes Anderson can do it and people can follow his movies, okay, you know, it was just sort of it was like a proof of concept kind of thing. Uh, a yeah. little bit, yeah, yeah, like it was something. Even when we delivered the movie for like streaming and stuff, and they were like, "What's with these different aspect ratios?" and we were like, "Well, Wes Anderson did it." You know? <laughs> that was your response, yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty much. <laughs> what would Wes Anderson do? Well, and if c- he can do it, I don't, yeah. I don't know if you wanted to go into something else, Tom, but I'm really interested in the uh, distribution for this movie because it came out it was acquired by Kino Lorber in November of 2017 is that right but it was made in Uh, no no in uh, March it was like out of South by Southwest oh I see yeah yeah it's a little earlier Um, but it it was released in the festival circuits in 2016 right right Uh, only in in like Europe and Latin America Mm -hmm. so it was like and then um, yeah then there was like a big push to sell the movie in Berlin the following year it's a long process like I'm envious of filmmakers who kind of, like, they have a movie at a festival, and boom, it's in release, and then they're done, yeah. you know? I've been touring this thing for, you know, a year and a half, and it yeah. feels long, you know? <laughs> like, ask ask my fiancé. It's like, uh, <laughs> you know, it's... It's just a constant hustle to yeah. try and sell this to someone and get yeah. people to look at it. And, it. and if it's an auteur film like this, you know, a little art house movie, it really does, and especially if you, you don't have your lead actor around, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's that's a big burden to fall entirely on you. And um, and also you feel kind of a... I, I, at least I do, uh, like a, a, a big responsibility to... Uh, get his his performance out there to really promote his performance right. because I think you know there's so many things I know he would have been excited to talk about. This is Anton Yelchin, of mm-hmm. course, and um, and so there's been yeah this sort of responsibility of like let's do the best job we can, and I, you know not only because of Anton, uh, although that's a big reason, but you know because of everybody else, Wyatt, Lucy, Larry. Um, the whole production team, just because everybody worked for pennies. Mm-hmm. And so when you do that and everybody's really proud of their work, you just you just want to make sure the movie's going to have a great life. Whereas I feel like with some of these, you know, uh, higher budget movies, everybody, you know, gets paid. That's the, ex- the expectation is, you know, the, the movie's, you know, going to get out there one way or another. And right. That's fine. And that's it. You know, but no, the it's it's a it's a big hustle as you said but um 
but it's great too because um, you get to you know travel the world and see things and uh, it's interesting to see I, I don't think like uh, you know a lot of filmmakers have that sort of firsthand contact with their audiences the way you do when you kind of in this artisanal way like travel around with your mm. film so I'm like you know I'll be in Hong Kong or in uh, or in Portugal or in uh, Sao Paulo where I'm from you know and I'll see the way audiences are reacting and it's really fascinating the differences between you know like the movies in release in Mexico right now so I'm following the activity on Twitter and stuff like that of how people are reacting and it's like you know and you get new reviews that come out and stuff like that and it's always really fascinating like the different points of view you have about the film, the different reactions and right. stuff. Yeah. And it's very rare that, yeah. you know, it's like reading a book and then immediately you could, poten- I mean, when you're traveling around with it, you could potentially get to talk to the author. Yeah. You know, in yeah. that sense. And um, when you're watch when you're following these reactions to the film, you know, do you follow with any sort of fear, uh, anxiety? What, what are the emotions as you watch Porto make its way? You do at the beginning a little bit, of course, like that first festival. The first festival for us was uh, San Sebastian in Spain, mm-hmm. um, which is becoming more of uh, – starting to have more of an international profile for like American Indies. Uh, Matt Porterfield's film Solar's Point premiered there last year. Uh, a couple friends from New York. My friend Nathan Silver is an independent film. He mm-hmm. came through Chicago recently, I think, did something. But he they were looking at a film – that they produced to, to to premiere there, and it's just like a and it's a just a beautiful place. Very you know, very enthusiastic audiences. You all you know you're going to get full houses. It's going to be you know a great experience. And um, so we we were I felt very lucky premiering there. Um, and you're always of course a little uh, you know has, trepidatious about uh, how people are going to respond uh, internationally. But the the cool thing, at least about like a festival like that, is you know at least those trade reviewers and stuff are all they're going to watch it on the big screen. You know, they're going to be there at you know with all the excitement around the movie, and so it's not kind of like watching it at home on a screener. So one, I mean, we're very fortunate. We got we got a great variety review just right off the bat. I think that's one of the first reviews that came out. So after that, I started to relax a little bit, <laughs> yeah. you know, like that helps, right? Yeah, yeah. Ease the tension. Yeah. So, but it was, I mean, it was okay. You know, I think you get to a certain stage in the editing and the, you know, in the the whole process where you're 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 comfortable with what the movie is, and um, you know, uh, hopefully nothing's going to alter that later on. I think you just have to remind yourself that you know, like, oh yeah, there's a group of people who are you know sort of my confidants who put their stamp of approval on it, you know, and that's good enough for me, you know. And I think, I don't know who said it, but yeah, like uh, if he, uh, my co-writer, Larry, he's like, you don't do it for validation. You don't do it for reviews. You don't do it even for money. You do it because it's fun, because you learn something from it, because, you, you know, you you put yourself through something to get to another thing. You, you can't do it for uh, accolades or whatever because right. you're going to be frustrated your whole life you it's know? storytelling yeah. yeah yeah totally and it's it, it's supposed to be very personal right so but you hope people connect to it uh and um and yeah the curious thing is that in certain places people connect to it more people connect to it less just culturally things mean something to certain people yeah do you notice any uh cultural differences like between do, the yeah. europe and you you said also obviously south america as well i do um I mean, yeah, there are people, there are people like in North America, people tend to read Anton's character 
in a really negative way. And um, and that's okay with us because that's that was part of the design of his character. In what way? What is the like negativity? Oh, that he's a creep and obsessive, and and he certainly is, and he's got all those negative traits. Um, I also happen to personally find things about him, his character endearing. And the complicated thing about the timeline of the film, or the complicated, you know, we we don't hold your hand emotionally through the film. We complicate <laughs> things, <laughs> the path. We give you sort of like a a kind of. Um, uh, you know, uh, a jagged kind of swirly, uh, you know, uh, scenic route. Let's yeah, say right. through through those emotions, and they can get ugly sometimes. And I think there are audiences who are okay with nav- navigating that and coming up with their own conclusions. And then there are other audiences who are a little bit more used to the filmmaker kind of holding your hand and taking you through that and telling you this is what you should feel here and this is what you should feel there. And I think North American audiences, especially. You know, I don't know. I, it's hard. It's hard to generalize because this. I mean, it's right. such a big country. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but uh, I think sometimes uh, things that we were sort of intentional on our part, or sort of hands off on our part in terms of the storytelling, people here perceived as us uh, not entirely being like successful in terms of our storytelling, whereas in Europe. It's sort of, oh, well, this is the sort of art house language that we're used to. So they had no problem kind of navigating. I know it's the old cliche, like, my movies are understood in Europe and not in North America. You know, (laughs) like, it's like um, uh, going back to, like, you know, the 50s with, uh, like, people like Howard Hawks and John Ford and, you know, like, uh, uh, my movies will be appreciated in France. You know, that old cliche. But it's it's kind of true. It's, there are certain market uh, expectations here, at least, that are um, un- unrealistic when you're releasing a small movie like this. And the frustration for me is that, and not just for me, but for my friends' films that get released too, like a lot of Chicago filmmakers, I see this happen too, too. Like, they're just making their little movie and they're happy if it gets, you know, a few uh, showtimes at the Cisco or at the Music Box or whatever, but then everybody else in the industry is like, "No, oh, you got to get a sales agent, you got to get distribution, you got to do this, you got to do that," and they're like, "Well, right. you know, I mean," and and if you don't have that stamp of like Sundance or Cannes or whatever, and um, there are really good films being made in Chicago right now, but that don't go to those festivals, don't get that pedigree because they're not part of that system. You know, mm-hmm. they're not. From the beginning, they don't have a, a producer or sales company attached that means something to the people who program those festivals, so they don't get the attention. But uh, so I'm, I'm digressing here. But nah, what I mean is, um, we're going to mecha- talk about hockey soon. So. Yes. Oh, good, good, good. <laughs> the the mechanism that exists here in the states, it's very the discussion a lot, as you guys know, is is around things like awards, box office. Uh, distribution and right now we're in particularly in, a, in an interesting place where things are online a lot and there's this whole economy there that we're not entirely clear about how that works yet and um, films have way more visibility now but yet we still use this metric of distribution and box office and reviews and tomato scores and blah 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 right and there's some kind of flaw behind that um, I think for things like the emoji movie or you know um, Transformers Eight, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, that's okay. Sure. I think those are, those consumeristic, hyper consumeristic appraisal mechanisms are fine. 
we need them. Families, you know, are going to exactly. go out to a movie the over average the weekend. Consumer. They totally need them. For somebody who's going to go see a little art house movie at the Siskel or at the Music Box, I don't, you know, I think that that's different. They the they need some other discourse to be going on and to to help in the appreciation of the movie. And I think that's where our the mechanisms that are in place are failing those audiences a little bit. But there are, uh, that's not to say there aren't wonderful critics and wonderful people doing doing things a lot. So that's been a little bit of a frustration here. At the same time, dude, I got a theatrical release. I got my movie's on Blu-ray. My yeah. movie's going to be on, you know, it's like... It's coming on to Netflix this month. It's, yeah. you know, it's awesome. It's like in, in if I'll look back at this movie in, in five, ten years and I'll be like, oh, yeah, we, we totally accomplished what we set out to accomplish, so... Yeah. yeah. Um, getting into the, the story of Porto a little bit, I really, in watching the film, um, two things really jumped out at me. One, the incredible yeah. visuals of of the film. I think uh, uh, shooting on those three different f- film formats and just shooting on film at all was a fantastic yeah. decision. Um, you really, I've never been to Porto. I've never been to Portugal, but I really... Uh, appreciated it from that visual standpoint. I think it was extremely successful there. And also the story of telling this kind of difficult relationship um, for those, you know, our listeners maybe have not seen this. Um, it revolves around kind of this one night stand sort of situation, a night of um, unmitigated passion in a lot of ways and kind of the aftermath of that. Um, I know also on the, on the home release here, you have a uh, double play, which was a documentary you shot with a shot with uh, James Benning and Richard Linklater. Richard Linklater did the before trilogy. Yeah. And this is a long roundabout way of saying, <laughs> did, did that at all? Did the before trilogy, which has a somewhat similar idea. It's a lot of walking and talking and just watching characters develop. Was there any sort of influence on Porto from those? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think I just internalized I'm I'm old enough that I watched them as as they came out. Right. Right. So um that's you can't really replicate that experience if you're if you're new to them and you just pick up the criterion, you know, yeah, box, box set, set and and just go through them in a weekend or whatever. Right. Like I didn't know, when I watched the first one, I didn't know there was going to be a second one and no. I didn't, you know, and and when the third one came, you know, I had a sort of suspicion, but it was still kind of like, you know, a, a jolt. Uh and um and that sense of that that playing with time those gaps in time um was really fascinating to me and sort of opened up my mind to what you know what cinema is capable of the i think yeah uh link later was certainly influenced by like the antoine duanel movies the truffaut films you know and the gaps between those films mm-hmm. and the character maturing and um the the michael apted for you know up series and all that stuff and so the you know those those are such amazing experiments and so absolutely so there's you know as in porto we have we're playing with this gap in time but it's not between films it's in the film right right. it's like the gap so so in a way i i did consciously sort of think about that idea of well let's play with ellipses there's time passing with these characters but let's put it into the movie and, you know, collapse it, collapse that sense of time. Like in a cut, you can collapse that sense of time. You get into all all kinds of other movies that use that same device, like uh, Alan Renee's films, Muriel and Hiroshima Monomur, last year, Marimbad. And uh, I mean, there's so many, but um, the Wes Anderson movie we were just talking about, Mm -hmm. Grand Budapest. Uh, 
what was it like getting your actors in like what kind of notes did you have to give them in order to get their characters developed with those different time periods because that sounds like a bit of a challenge oh man well one one thing we did that was really helpful is um the first day first day of production i had a um, a special makeup team come in and uh put like old age masks on them like put old, old really like you know old age makeup to make them feel like the sense of like displaced in their bodies right right so um both anton and lucy were aged to age 80 nice and uh we we weren't sure if we were going to include that as a poetic device in the film at any point so we filmed it all in super 8 and i have those like outtakes and stuff Uh but um Anton walked through the school where the makeup department was set up, and kids were like holding open the doors for him because they actually <laughs> thought he was eighty. Yeah, and he was like drooling. Nice kids. Yeah, drooling oh, out of the God. side of one. You know, and he was really. I mean, he really sold it, and um, and I think from that first day on, the, the characters really they felt, uh, yeah, they already kind of reflective about time and aging. You know, mm-hmm. and that was really helpful. Um, so that was a little trick that we used, but um, yeah, uh, it was just I think different. You know, a lot of the times you talk about superficial things like what does my hair look ten years from now, you know, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But we wanted to talk about yeah, motivation. They were both kind of lonely people, and they weren't. You don't necessarily change over time. They're just things that become more pronounced. So I think that's what we kind of focused on this idea of. Uh, well, these these characteristics are already inherent in your characters. Let's just make them a little bit more pronounced as you get older. And even physicality played into that with uh, Anton. Uh, he had a bad back, and oh, you yeah. see, and you see early totally. on, it's it's there. And then I just it 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 was so crazy to see him you know, years on that time shift and he just looks so kind of haggard. His hair has a little bit of salt and pepper in it. Yeah. And he, it looks like he's just having complete difficulty walking, but it was really nice to see that it was set up already. You saw him physically have a little bit of it. And then as you said, more pronounced. And that's um, one of those nice things that ties in the, that makes the uh, time change more like make more sense right ties it all together absolutely it was it was really fantastic you to know see. that jake walk um we called it the jake walk <laughs> yeah but um so like a few months after the shooting uh, i was in paris for part of the post-production and my editing assistant there she was watching all the rushes like just going through everything synchronizing sound and all this stuff mm-hmm. and she got really obsessed with anton's walk right and then uh, 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 a few weeks later, we were all in Cannes together, and Anton was there. He was showing Green Room, right? And um, and my assistant came down from Paris and stayed with me for a couple nights. And uh, and I introduced her to Anton, and she was like, can you please do the Jake walk? <laughs> <laughs> and he just, like, turned it on, just like that. In a snap of a finger, he just he was walking down the croissette in Cannes doing the, the Jake, Jake walk. <laughs> and it was just so amazing. Like, the way actors, kind of the muscle memory, and it just kind of, yeah, he was just such a pro. It was incredible. I mean, he really inhabits the role here. He, yeah. um, I, I get the sense of loneliness very much from him. Just, just one look at him, just almost right away. Um, I guess... I wanted to broach this subject because uh, I know a lot – it's kind of come back up again, um, Anton. What was it like working with him? Because he really was a very um, 
bright actor in so many ways. He was able to do things like Star Trek. And um, I remember even seeing him as a relatively young man in uh, Charlie Bartlett. Yep. Oh, yeah. And it was it was really sad and tragic to to see him go. Can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with him? Yeah, it came. I mean, it started from a place of a cinephilia. It was on. Uh, I had I'd written, co- co-edited, co-written a book about Joe Dante, and um, Anton was the star of Joe Dante's Bearing the X, which was being shot a few months after the book came out, and after uh, I had released my first movie, and it already progressed into the the very very beginning stages of Porto, and um, and I asked Joe if I could visit the set. And um, and I asked Anton separately, too, like, you know, if we could meet up in L.A., but I wanted, you know, make sure Joe was okay with that and just want to show up on his set. So they both said that was okay, and it was literally like um, they were shooting uh, somewhere in, like, uh, West Hollywood, uh, fairly central, and I just kind of, like, pulled my rental car in, onto the street. And Anton and Joe were just, like, on the sidewalk just waiting for the camera guys to, you know, like, get things ready or whatever. And I just walked right up to Anton, and I was like, hey, man. How's it going? And he was like, "Hey, you're Gabe." And and then Joe turned around. And he's like, "Oh yeah, hey, there's Gabe." You know, like and it just it kind of progressed from there. It was like nothing. It was stepping from real life into a, a movie set, yeah, um, or a sort of movie world where you know we'd take lunch breaks and everybody from the crew is like kind of an old Hollywood crew. We're talking about like the '60s and all you know, like the mm-hmm. glory days and stuff like that. And it was just so we just had such a great rapport going in and we were surrounded by all these like people who were kind of very supportive in a non kind of a uh, Hollywood way, even though we were on a Hollywood set, you know, they were just kind of people who were passionate about film. And I had a, a friendship with other directors who worked with Anton and they sort of told Anton, you know, you might want to work with Gabe or whatever, you know, I don't know what, sure. what, what happened behind this the scenes but Anton basically signed up right away and I want you know I I knew I wanted to work with him from the beginning I'd seen him in Charlie Bartlett I'd seen him in Only Lovers Left Alive right I'd seen him in a few other things and he just really impressed me I I love the quality of his voice I love the physicality of his, his work his performances and because of his choices his recent choices working with Joe working with Jim Jarmusch working with Michael Almereda working with, uh, you know, these directors who I consider some of the contemporary greats, um, I knew he was interested in in not just Star Trek, right? right. That he was, you know, going to maybe be receptive to doing a little experimental movie in Portugal. And so it just started from there, and he was. He was really keen on it. And, of course, the thing that you discover talking to these act, you know, actors like Anton or even, you know, Chris Pine or... Uh, or uh, uh, Sean William yeah. Scott, who we were talking about before we started the show. Um, we will be getting to hockey soon. Oh, people. good, good, good. <laughs> um, you know, actors are always hungry for material. It's there's no, um, uh, there or I should say there's there is a serious shortage of good material. You know, now, there was a point in my life where I was cohabitating space with Greta Gerwig in New York. I was working at the MoMA. And I lived in this apartment, which is the apartment in Francis Ha, one of the apartments in Francis Ha, the middle one. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. That Adam Driver's character lives in and the other guy whose name I forget. Oh, that's a rad apartment. It, it was <laughs> It was a awesome apartment. It's The, the lease is not in our control and no. in any of our friend circles' control anymore. But I came in when Greta was off shooting uh, To Rome with Love and I stayed in her room 
for a few weeks while she was off in Italy doing that. And then she came back, and then I was on the couch for a while. I was in my buddy's Oscars room. But it was just sort of it was this period where I was sort of learning a little bit about production. My friend Oscar works on uh, the Safdie Brothers movies. He he produced Good Time and Heaven Knows What. Wow. So, um, and he's somebody who goes back uh, to Northwest Northwestern days. He's a Northwestern grad. So he was around when I was doing block mm-hmm. cinema, like in 2002. So, um, so Small World and... Um, Oscar was working with Noah Baumbach and you know I was talking about to Greta and it was just like my my I was like she should she's the luckiest person in the world she's doing going off and doing these amazing movies uh with with big name auteur directors and they were about to go off and shoot Francis Ha you know pretty soon they're kind of getting warmed up on that and and I could tell that she was just she was kind of depressed the reason that she did Francis Ha, the, way, the reason that she kind of got up to making something like Lady Bird is that the scripts just weren't coming in. They just mm-hmm. weren't interesting projects. And um, and I was like, wow, that's incredible to me that, like, you know, there's not, like, six scripts a day that Greta's getting that are all wonderful, you know? No, there's a serious kind of shortage of these kinds of more experimental, more outside-the-box movies and even at an agency like CAA, you know, Anton's agents were at CAA. He had the same agent as Nicolas Cage mm-hmm. and people like that. There's still, there's like a guy there in that department who just looks at indie scripts. And that guy is hungry for stuff because he wants to be feeding stuff like that to his clients all the time, you know, and uh, because they're asking for it. And those scripts just aren't coming in, either because the people writing them don't think they're ever going to be able to get it to a Anton Yelchin or to a, you know, whoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, my our, the mechanism that's there is sort of is the, it's the same mechanism that Jeremy Saulnier used to get to Anton. You know, Anton, like, was on a list of people. And when Jeremy, like, submitted his script to CAA, and they were like, well, we, you should take a look at these people. And they're like, is Anton Yelchin available? You know? <laughs> and that's the way it kind of worked, you know? And there was no, it's, the conversation was never, how much money do you have? Never. It was, like, it was always about the strength of the material and how passionate the client was about that. So he's off making Star Wars, uh, Star Trek, mm-hmm. And um, and they're happy because they're making their commission or whatever. Right. And as long as in between making those blockbuster movies, even if it takes two years, three years that they get another big hit like that, they just want their clients to be happy. And they're feeding them scripts all the time. And so I found that process surprisingly easy. Sorry, that was like a big digression. No, please. Give <laughs> us the inside scoop. No, yeah, please. But, you know, that's I think that's sort of the reality is that a lot of it is just bullshit. I'm sorry, I can't. No, go ahead. ahead. All right. It's is is crappy TV is, you know, crappy episodic stuff, fairly formulaic stuff, um, fairly soulless, uh, you know, Hollywood filler. I think Greta did this romantic comedy at one point. Uh, with Russell Brand, I don't know if you remember oh, that. Oh God, one, Arthur. Arthur, yeah, the re- yeah. Arthur the remake. remake. Oh, jeez. I mean, like Bummer. those are those are the. I think the types. I can't speak for her, obviously. Yeah. Just kind of, but I, yeah, I'd assume that those are the kinds of scripts that she was getting that she was kind of becoming more and more disillusioned by. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I think there is a, some motivation there. Like, it actually, kind of gives you confidence that you can actually pick up the phone. And get probably get something to an actor of that caliber. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like a lot of people are discouraged from trying right at the get go. But um, yeah, man, I think uh, Anton, 
he was just i mean i think i was in- incredibly fortunate that he said yes uh but um working with him i mean he was the youngest guy i always say this he was the youngest guy on our set and he was by far the most experienced you know he was the guy who was kind of showing us you know how to do it and uh and i just learned you know we'd watch movies together all the time and just love talking to him about movies uh especially like movies from the 20s silent movies he was obsessed with silent expressionistic acting and all mm-hmm. this stuff and he was uh, obsessed with travis bickle to the you know, um, <laughs> taxi driver and uh you know those characters weren't like necessarily likable characters and with uh joaquin phoenix and the master right um there's this lynn ramsey movie now with joaquin phoenix i don't know if you guys have seen it yet it's, it's, it's being released pretty it, soon. you were never really here yeah I saw it in Cannes last year. I wasn't a big fan of the movie, but um, but gosh, he's just such an unlikable character in so many of his movies, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I, <laughs> he's and great though. He's he's amazing, you know. But um, but I, I was like, man, you know, we we got a lot of um, kind of um, uh, backlash because we made, we wrote Anton's character as this kind of dark guy. But I'm like, well, how, why don't they apply that same scrutiny to to these Joaquin Phoenix performances? You know, we're kind of like. Ah. Or uh, Daniel Day Lewis in uh, There Will Be Blood, and There like, Will Be Blood, or even in in Phantom uh, Thread. In Phantom Thread, he's kind of you know exactly you, yeah disgusting a, sometimes. Yeah, absolutely, and and everybody was like, "Oh, this is so intelligently written and all this stuff," and all. And I'm like, "Man, what? How how come how come Paul Thomas Anderson gets a gets a pass, and we, you know we we don't we don't get the same kind of I don't know. It was it was interesting. I think if Anton uh, were around, I think he would have a lot of really interesting things to say about his character and um and how he saw them and and how he does because i gave him a lot of freedom about how 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 he wanted to design it and at one point jim jarmusch who's our executive producer he said he read a a draft of the script and he said oh man can you make anton a little less sad can you make jake like can you make jake's character like a little less like creepy and tragic (laughs) and um you know, because he he knew. I think Jim has a good sense of of that of like how audiences may respond to those types of things. Mm-hmm. And I'm a little worried that sometimes in his own films he's pandering just just a little bit. You know, right. like he's making his characters more likable than they have to be because he's a little bit worried that people are going to be t- you know tune out of the story too quickly right. if they don't find the characters sympathetic. That's got to be a weird uh, line to navigate the anticipation of the audience reaction versus like the sacrificing of authenticity you know yeah well yeah but you i mean you don't ultimately you don't want the audience to tune out of the story if you don't and especially if you're making movies on jim jim's level and uh i think he has a responsibility to his backers and all these you know people to get the movie out there it's i think it's you know and again it's somebody i can't speak for but i i think he's probably I think I think also he generally his movies are very affectionate towards his characters and um and he can't I think he told me once that he has a problem with making his characters suffer. And uh, that's like the opposite of like the Coen brothers. Yeah, All they right. do is like torture their oh, characters. Uh, what's <laughs> that know? movie? The regular, A Serious Man? Serious Man. Yeah. Oh, oh that's, that's all that is. It's pure torture. Yeah. <laughs> like how can we make this guy's life worse by the minute, you oh, know? God. Uh, so I don't know. Yeah, different different aesthetics, different approaches. I think we were. I, I didn't have like any kind of like. I, I didn't want to see Anton's character suffer. I just wanted it to be like a coherent 
thing within the t- the, the text of the film. Yeah, exactly. No, yeah. I mean, it it yeah. is. It very much feels off putting. Right. <laughs> yeah. It is. I mean, this is a di- this is a difficult love story in a lot of ways because yeah. I know watching it myself, um, there were times when I was a little I was a little bit like, oh my god, you know, Jake, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. Like, it was. Uh, you have to channel the worst of yourself too to it, understand him. Yeah. yeah, and it was one of those things where I didn't necessarily identify with Jake, but I understood him and mm-hmm. I understood where he was coming from. And as as well with uh, Lucy Lucas's character as well, um, I wanted to ask, how did you approach writing this kind of love story? A love story that is dark in a lot of ways is um, especially in that in that third part of it. Very, it's very sexual. It's yeah. something that might that audience might not be ready for. How did you approach you know making this kind of story? Well, it's a combination of things. It's like trying not to uh, follow the tropes of most romantic movies. Like, first of all, I think kind of, uh, you know, I, I love romantic comedies. I love love stories and movies. I think it's one of my favorite genres. Um, I just think it's, you know, there's something really, yeah, like you get a, a bird's eye view into somebody, this intimate thing that you would never get in real life, right? You're never going to be part of that. I can even, you know, like in romantic relationships I've been in, I can um, feel sometimes like the frustration of my friends and family, like my mom or my best friends being like, hey, we haven't seen you in a few weeks. What's going on in your life? You know, and and you're just kind of you don't want to talk about it. You kind of you want to keep it for yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's so great about most movies that center on an intimate romance like that is you really feel like they're privileged to be able to kind of you know, uh, voyeuristically kind of look into this affair that's unfolding. So, um, uh, so it was, it was a, a combination of that, the affection for that genre, but not wanting to follow the same footsteps as everybody else. Right. right. So with so many movies yeah. that just take the, a single minded approach or just all attack, uh, romantic relationships in the same way. It's nice that a movie like Porto takes, um, a more difficult approach to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I want to with that last third because it it really builds. Um, you know, talking about form and talking about how the story progresses, both emotionally and narratively. When we the first two, I guess, acts two sections, um, we don't really we don't see the actual affair itself. We see kind of the edges of it, yeah, and the the aftermath and what leads into it. But when we get to that third section and you're shooting these incredibly intimate scenes that you know, if if you don't mind me saying, look beautiful. Right. They they look very beautiful. Was it difficult to have that kind of, you know, v- pretty in your face sexual content, you know, shooting that with Anton and Lucy. How did that go for you guys? Yeah, so like I'd, I'd say, you know, um Adding to the the romantic uh, movies that I enjoy that, let's say, are made in, like, the American studio system, there are also a lot of, like, European art house and uh, movies that are about intimate relationships that show that other side that a lot of the Hollywood movies don't show, like, sex, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Like... You know, I, as a as a critic with my critic hat on, you know, I'd watch things like Knocked Up and be like, "Why does she have her bra on?" Yeah. You know, like um, <laughs> who does is, that? Yeah, PG thirteen. Yeah, yeah. Is <laughs> that's it? why. No, it's not. <laughs> and like, I think it's because something in Catherine Hagel's contract. But um, you know, uh, it's like I you don't see that sort of. You're watching it and you're like 
aware of the apparatus around, you know, like when you're watching, there's this Israeli movie from the early 2000s called Late Marriage. And there's a sex scene in the middle of the movie that goes on for like 30 minutes. (laughs) And it's amazing. It's one of the best sex scenes I've ever seen in a movie. Everybody talks about Bertolucci. They talk about... uh, Gosh, what else? Uh, what's that um, Nicholas Roig film? Is it Performance? No, not Performance. Uh, that's not sure. Um, there's another, with Donald Sutherland. There's this like, really long with Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland. With um, Donald Sutherland? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a really scene. long. Sex yeah, scene. <laughs> I, I was already traumatized by seeing his butt in Animal House. You know, like. <laughs> but you, if you want to, if you you really want to like see Donald Sutherland, you know, in a very kind of sexy. I've or, been looking for that. You have. Well, you, you found it. <laughs> Um, you know, there's, uh, but yeah, there's this, this Israeli film, Late Marriage was really big inspiration because the characters were just like, usually the sex scene is the climax. It happens. It's wonderful. And then life goes on and then you get, you know, the next scene or whatever. Uh, I mean, I went to see, we, uh, my fiance and I, we went to see the 50 shades of gray sequel movie, just, I don't know, because we're masochistic or something. <laughs> 51 uh, shades of gray. 51 shades, 52. I didn't, I didn't know until I saw that, that the character's name is gray. And that's oh, right. why it's called that, yeah. you know. Like I was like, "Oh God!" <laughs> and and uh, but it's that's like how sex is set up. Like that movie is sort of marketed as a risque movie about sex, but it's actually the opposite. It's the most conservative treatment of sex that you'd ever see in a movie because it treats sex as a sort of payoff, as if it was like an action movie kind of. Yeah, like yeah. And then and then they just move on to the next absurd plot point. The the so I'm going to contrast that with this Israeli film because these two characters they have sex and then we're like okay what's next like I guess we saw the best part of the movie and there's still another hour of this and they're just lying around in bed and you know they're just talking about what they did they're just kind of rolling around they're just kind of you know largely in an unbroken take and just, just kind of like pastoral approach to that kind yeah of scene. and then they like eventually in like 15 minutes they have sex again and uh, you know and then they talk about that again you know and it just feels so natural and it just feels really wonderful and true much truer to the experience of sex itself or, or intim- intimacy itself i want right. to say sex um because that's what that's yeah. what it really comes off as it is the the way that they look at each other yeah is really incredible it's hard not to be drawn into this idea that it's while it is sexual in nature it is so intimate it's not a beat no right it's not a beat it's not just like oh wow that was kind of hot like right right. uh especially with the way the the film is bookended with that loving look um it just it i think that's what it captures and it's it's i'd be really interested to see this israeli film now because it's like a film just about sex you know doing that sort of thing just the way this is about intimate relationships and they just talk about it a little bit yeah or you see like andy warhol movies where yeah just the camera's running and like the in a a more kind of aggressively temporal way where it's just like duration of things you know this blue movie is where viva and her partner i forget the actor's name but they're just it's 90 minutes of of that of just the uh, two two people eloping and um you know uh i don't know i just i i i think that if you're in a in a romantic situation like that where it is you're meeting for the first time you sort of confuse intimacy uh authentic intimacy let's say like emotional mm-hmm. intimacy with physical intimacy so i think that's happening sure and in the story we we're very conscious of that we we're also very conscious about the idea of these characters declaring themselves to each other 
And when that because ha- when you're in that situation, that's kind of what you do a little bit. You're kind of going crazy. You don't know what how to put this into words. And a lot of what you're saying kind of sounds ridiculous or banal or whatever. But it happens to all of us. It even happens in that v- first film in the Before trilogy. Sure. A lot of the dialogue in that is like it's hard to listen to yeah. because <laughs> it makes you kind of cringe. You right. know? Yeah. Um, how can these people be in love? And yeah. um, you know that. Or not, I, or not be, or not be, yeah, yeah. especially you know later on things fall apart yeah. for the, for the yeah. two characters. It plays into the haunting aspect of the end, absolutely. But uh, I'm maybe maybe it's just because I was uh, wrapped up in the visuals and just the the performances here in Porto. But it made me uh, think about what it was like to be in that moment, in that moment of first infatuation right what's what's a real what feelings are real what are just kind of part of the moment so um porto really captures that it's fantastic uh you can actually get it now if you're if you're interested in purchasing the blu-ray you can get it you know pretty much anywhere blu-rays are through kino lorber kino lorber um or any other venue it's actually cheaper on kino's website than on amazon so probably well done kino lorber yeah yeah yeah. and then sold me also (laughs) in a couple of weeks it will be on netflix yeah, it'll be right? April sixteenth on Netflix. If you, you know, you, now now I can answer that dreaded question: Is it on Netflix? <laughs> yeah, right. Soon. Yeah, yes. Yeah, and the answer is, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, but, that's kind of like a graveyard. We were going to talk. I don't know if we have time. Yeah. Um, Are we? Yeah, just ch- chat a little bit about the uh, process of getting it onto Netflix because we talked a little bit about it. Yeah, off there's like there's a lot of checks okay. and balances. Yeah, what's the three flag uh, situation they got going there? So I, for, I first heard about this from Joe Swanberg, who of course has done a number of things for Netflix. Now I don't know if this is any kind of secret process. I think there are articles about it online, but. They're they're very rigorous about uh, how they like flag things that might not appear good, uh, uh, not might not appear in a visually in their yeah yeah, yeah like in their a, aesthetic exactly. So there's there's definitely like a Netflix aesthetic. They kind of want things to kind of look the same, mm-hmm. and they're definitely more into digital like delivery from things that were uh, captured digitally than captured on film. Like grain drives them crazy, yeah. right? Because they want people's TV sets to just be like clean, and, yeah. you know, and so, um, so like Joe shoots a lot of stuff on Super Sixteen, and he was saying that yeah, like there will be little things that happen, lens flares, little things that happen when you're know, shooting on film. So much can happen, right? Because yeah. it's just organic material, light rushing through, you know, negative, and um, and so they they tend they have the system where they say, okay, you, this thing you definitely have to correct it change it change the pixels change whatever you know airbrush it here whatever right uh this thing we strongly encourage you to (laughs) and this thing is optional so it's like a like a red flag a yellow flag and like a green i don't know but you shot porto with three different types of film yeah so so that's three different classes of problems that netflix Netflix has they're gonna be (laughs) shitting themselves (laughs) yeah (laughs) well we had actually we, we didn't have many flags from netflix but we had google flag our trailer because there's a shot like a very brief not even one second shot of lucy's character flicking the camera off (laughs) and um we had to put a black censorship bar over Over, lucy's finger just over the finger yeah just over the finger it's it's the same thing it's the the distributor said or the delivery people they said cut it out and i said no no i'm gonna like Height like in uh, highlight the the censorship aspect of it. Yeah. So yeah. actually, if you if you're really savvy, if you look really quickly at, at the trailer, only on Google, not on you, YouTube, not on any of the other streaming providers. Um, but if you look on Google Play, 
at our trailer, there's like a black bar over Lucy's oh, middle finger. God. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Gabe Klinger sticking it to the man. <laughs> yeah, Take right. that, Google. But uh, <laughs> even though it will be available on these streaming platforms, I do have to say, uh, Kino Lorber sent us the, the Blu-ray copy. It is stunning. All the all the little imperfections and all the little parts of it, the uh, the f- quality of the film looks fantastic. So, and uh, as I said earlier, it does come with the bonus documentary double play that you did with James Benning and Richard Linklater. Uh, audio commentary from you as well. Yeah, was that fun doing the no. audio? No, <laughs> is it <laughs> difficult terrible. to go back and a, watch? Probably that? about as fun as this is. <laughs> no, this is this is way more fun than the audio commentary. Are you kidding me? Being in like a cabin alone with no direction, no prompting. I should. Have done like the anchorman approach where like sure. you invite like Lou Rawls into your uh, you know uh, uh, recording session or like Paul Thomas Anderson with Boogie Nights. I should have had like a bong yeah. in you know, I should have been like taking bong hits while I was doing it. So, here's something. the deal with the uh, uh sorry, what was that? Lost my, <laughs> right. lost my, uh, there it Excuse is. Me. <laughs> Hold on one sec, just you kind of get a, get a little bit of water. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So Porto, we'll, we'll um, add that. We'll add that in graphics add later. That. Cool, <laughs> please. All right. Uh, thank you again, Gabe. You know, actually, before we go, you oh, teased hockey, it too many films. times. Top hockey films of all time. All go right. Uh, what we, we got? Uh, Mighty Ducks, Miracle, and Goon, and that, and then that's all. I, oh, and then you always you mentioned the Slapshot. Yeah. Slapshot. Yeah, you gotta have you gotta have Slapshot. That's probably the the best of the bunch. I mean, I love. I'm also a big fan of sports movies. I have to say, hockey's not the. It hasn't. We're still, I think, waiting for the great hockey movies. Yeah, it I has mean, been clearly. strangely shortchanged. Yeah, like you never you never see. It's always well. That's you know, what I like about Goon. Or, Goon takes a kind of a weird like. It breaks down what a hockey movie is, and it makes it about like a p- particular role within a hockey team which yeah, i like it highlight yeah. well it highlights the part about hockey that people i would say enjoy like on a you know on a kind of darker level enjoy yeah. the most people sell hockey to others like oh there's fights right with like the part that people always kind of complain about it's like oh yeah it's just a bunch of drunk dudes fighting you know they don't really know what they're doing but, but it's a role within the team which yeah, is a cool deconstruction being, of the hockey film genre <laughs> like right I mean, but you don't get what we, yeah, exactly. And I love Goon for that, but you don't get in hockey films what you get in baseball films, which is no. this sort of commentary on the American dream, right? Because right? baseball history has been so entangled with that. Right. So I love, you know, I think baseball films have been exploited for that particular, you know, like kind of the way that they stir up certain ideas in the in this sort of American dream landscape, especially like a masterpiece, which I just recently rewatched, Field of Dreams. Yeah. Oh my god! It's, it's hard. <laughs> Amazing movie. Yeah, it's hard Field not to American get. You dreams. get so drawn up in it. It's like if you build it, they will come. It's, oh, it's amazing. It's, I have this German friend. He doesn't know anything about baseball, and he loves Field of Dreams. <laughs> you know, it's just like he's, he's obsessed with it. So. Do you think? Do you think that you could make the great American hockey movie? Oh, geez. I'd have to learn a few things about hockey. I don't think I know enough. Baseball, I used to play. I made these this movie about these two guys who used to play baseball, uh, Linklater and Benning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love baseball as a sport. I go to, you know, I go to uh, see games as often as I can. So I don't know. I think I'd, I'd, I'd try my hand at that before making yeah. a hockey film. But why not? I wouldn't refuse sure. a hockey script uh, if a good one came my way. Yeah. 
Well, you've heard it. You've We're waiting it here for it first. Yeah. yeah, you know, Gabe Klinger is looking for your hockey script. <laughs> Could probably get Canadian funding for it. I believe you know? it because they're. It's... I would say Canada's pretty good about. They do a lot of funding for films, or at least I know they did back when um, David Cronenberg was making movies. You get stuff like The yeah. Brood, Ooh. especially hockey Ooh. films. Yeah, that's like that's like a subgenre up there. Oh. Yeah. That's well. That maybe that's our next dive in is to the the world of Canadian hockey cinema. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I mean, there is yeah. a lot to talk about there. Naturally, probably. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Gabe Klinger, writer and director of Porto. It is available through Kino Lorber now on Blu-ray. It's going to be on Netflix later this month. Uh, Gabe, thank you so much. What an enlightening conversation. Yeah, thanks, guys. It was it was fun. Yeah. All right, you have been listening to No Co Cinema here on WGM Plus. I'm Tom Hush. And I'm Connor Cornelius. And we will see you all next time. See you right now.